0: Remarkable accomplishments are happening every day on the Colorado Macy University and Western Colorado Community College campuses, from faculty instruction and research to student projects and community involvement. CMU Now is a monthly segment on the KAFM Community Affairs Hour, where we interview faculty, staff, athletic coaches, and students to keep you up to date on all things CMU and WCCC. I'm Caitlin Burtzall along with my co-host David Ludlum and we'll have two guests on the show today and our first guest is Associate Professor of History, Dr. Sarah Swetberg. Welcome to the show.
1: I guess that my website hasn't been updated in a while. I, I got promoted several years ago so I'm actually a professor, professor. of history. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. That's nice. It and was right? a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I can actually update that
0: profile You're for you. You're talking to the right person. Okay. She's got access. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Well, so you have taught at CMU for, you know, I think it's over 20 years now. And, you know, I can only imagine in that time frame how much you've contributed to the university and to the thousands of students that you've taught in class. Um, But before you came to CMU and before you earned your doctorate and before you earned your undergraduate, You actually dropped out of college and became an activist and so when we were talking earlier, I just found that really interesting and I thought our KFM listeners might too. So can you talk to us a little bit about your background before you came to CMU?
1: Of course, I did go to college right out of high school. Um, I was 18, and I just wasn't, I think, emotionally ready to be a college student. I got involved in anti-apartheid activism in 1986, and I stopped going to classes, and so I just decided it was time to do something else. I had a friend who was graduating from college and moving to San Francisco, so I moved to San Francisco with her, and it was 1986, so it was the midst of the AIDS epidemic, so I remained involved in anti-apartheid activism. I was involved in anti-war activism because the U.S. had a very aggressive anti-communist foreign policy in Central America. But mostly I was involved in AIDS activism because our government in the midst of a pandemic refused to acknowledge that people were dying. And it was because the people who were infected and dying were either gay men or IV drug users. And so, for instance, President Reagan did not mention the word AIDS until I believe five years into his presidency and five years into the epidemic. I was incredibly intellectually curious, worked during the day to support myself, but I was involved in in a various kinds of activism and reading a lot from the public library.
2: Dr. Swedberg, what did your activism look like? And was there a watershed moment when you knew that you were having an impact
1: Well, it looked like a lot of different things. When I could, I joined other people. I'm not much of a leader. I'm a really good person on the ground. And so if there was a march or a rally or some kind of protest, I would join in. I did manage to scrape enough money together to go to the big 1987. At that point, it was called March for Lesbian and Gay Rights, I believe, in Washington, D.C. And part of that was civil disobedience at the Supreme Court where we were protesting a recent Supreme Court decision, among other things. Um, And so several hundred of us gathered there. I was not arrested. I was part of the support team, but many of the people in what we call the Affinity Group, the people that I had trained with, were arrested.
2: And that watershed moment?
1: I think I always was very attuned to social justice issues, even from a child. I don't actually remember one moment. I remember just always being upset that the world didn't look like the world should in my mind
0: and i love getting to hear that because you know we have so many faculty members at cmu so it's hard for i think us as staff to sometimes get to personally know our faculty members so then when you hear about your backgrounds and all of the experiences you have and that you bring that to cmu and i think that's really important for our students to be taught by professors that have lived it lived been there done it and then now have devoted their life to teaching our students so think it's pretty important.
2: Gives you street cred, so they say, right?
1: <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but yeah, <laughs> I, I think it either alarms students or some, some do find it interesting and ask me a lot of questions. And certainly now I teach a course specifically intro to LGBT studies and we talk about the AIDS epidemic. And so they do hear some of those stories in that class. And I often talk about it in my history 132 class too. So the US history survey.
2: Now, I want to challenge you on something you said earlier that you're not a leader. But leadership can take many different forms. And one of the things I, we talked about before the show a little bit was this idea that you had personal anxieties about speaking in front of people and getting up and, and talking. You set out to overcome so that you could be an effective communicator and teacher. And you did that and then some. And that seems like leadership to me. How did you do that? Like Because I know we have a lot of first-gen students who are just coming in to the university culture. Maybe they have anxieties. Maybe they have nerves about getting up in front of people. Or How did you accomplish that?
1: Um, Well, it's been really a lifelong project. I remember I was an athlete in high school and going to basketball camp and thinking, this time I'm going to not just not talk to anyone. And so I really made myself talk to people. And I think it just is, I've always had things to say. It's just figuring out how to say them and understanding that I won't always say things perfectly, but I have a voice and I should use it. So I, I think it's been a lifelong project and I've gotten better at it. I think I have found ways to negotiate the world that work for me. And I think part of it also was realizing that people actually do like me, which took me a long time to realize because I grew up in a small town. It wasn't always the case that I felt comfortable socially.
0: Well, you are listening to CMU Now on KAFM Community Affairs, and our first guest today is Professor of History, Dr. Sarah Swedberg. So I think kind of building on that, you know, you talked about overcoming your personal anxieties, and I think that not only benefits your students to be able to see that and to hear that story, but it also benefits our community because you're a faculty member who does value getting out and involving the community in your work and your research. And one project that we were talking on that's a new one for you is um, a new oral history project. So I was hoping you could tell our listeners today a little bit about that project and kind of how it's at the nexus of academia and our community.
1: So I started doing oral history probably several years ago. I did one project about Colorado's nineteen ninety two Amendment two, which was an anti-gay initiative that was passed by voters. And I did a actually a radio show about the local response that. Even though it was hard for me because I'm not good at talking to strangers, it was a really exciting project. And that's been kind of on the back burner and something I've wanted to get back to. But last year, after the murder of George Floyd, when there was resurgence of activism here in the community, despite the pandemic, I went to the Juneteenth celebration in Lincoln Park and really thought how much We were going to lose if someone didn't get those stories. And so it was an idea of doing oral history, particularly with black Mesa County residents. And it was just kind of floating around in my mind. And then I had a student who needed an internship and we were talking about various possibilities like, no, that's not so interesting. And I said, well, I I have this idea. What do you think about that? And he got really excited about it. So I contacted the Oral History Project here in Grand Junction through the public library and talked to Noel Kalinian there. And he got really excited about it. And he asked the question up the ladder where he works. And so we managed to create, it's called the Social Justice Archive. And we just did our first oral history training. And I've just collected the first oral history life story, part one of a, one that's going to be at least two parts.
2: Well, and before maybe we get into some, what some of those life stories might be, for listeners that might not know, what is an oral history compared to any other kind of history? Mm-hmm. I know you, you've written history books and you publish paper. What's the difference?
1: This is just a way to collect primary source, as we would call it, material. So these are life histories. I am asking the narrator's a series of questions to get at a story of their life as I possibly can. So I'm going back and asking them about their childhood, about things that they've done throughout their lives. Towards the end of the interview, ask them about their experiences living in Grand Junction if they didn't grow up here, and particularly stories about racism and race because they all have those stories. And I think if we don't collect them, those stories are lost. A few of them will get collected and kept. But I am interested in not just the so-called important people, but all the folks who showed up at the Juneteenth celebration. I probably won't be able to get all of them. Young people, older people, people who are working retail, people who are working in the business, who both have something we can use now to tell the stories, but also for people in the future to say, I want to do a project on black life in Grand Junction. What was it like? in the early 21st century. Can you maybe
0: tell us a little bit about some of the stories that are starting to come out of that or maybe some of the individuals that you've interviewed and their stories?
1: So the only person I've interviewed so far is David Combs, who is a businessman here, former referee at many, many athletic events. And he's also one of the members of the Black Citizens and Friends of Mesa County. And so I, that's the first one I've done. It's, it is a really interesting story. I've known him a little bit, but just hearing all the different aspects of his life from growing up in Minneapolis to working in the oil fields to coming to Grand Junction and finding a place for himself. I'm doing the second interview with him this Friday and then I'm interviewing Shannon Robinson who is Mesa alumna and a local activist on Saturday. What I'm hoping is that I keep providing the oral history training but that community members will take this project up and run with it so that David Combs then goes out and interviews people that he knows and those get archived in the oral history collection and Shannon Robinson goes and interviews people she knows, so it becomes kind of a snowball and that it's mostly black residents of Mesa County interviewing other black residents rather than me as a white woman going into people's lives and asking them questions in ways that they might not trust me. Um, I think David trusts me and my friend Shan- I'm friends with Shannon, so she trusts me. I think it becomes harder to bridge that gap, that racial gap for people that I don't know.
2: Now, for a self described introvert, it seems like you're doing a lot of stuff out in the community. And I have to assume if you are an introvert, that's not by accident. You're doing it intentionally. Why is it important for academics, not just in your discipline, but maybe throughout academia to have some kind of externally facing part of your career where you're communicating directly with the community out there? And and why do you do that?
1: It's always been important to me. I was a reluctant academic because I think because of my experience as a college dropout and activist, like a lot of people, I had this idea that academia was divorced from the quote unquote real world, but of course it isn't. And we see that all the time with our students. We have so many first generation students. I have at least one student this semester who's houseless. They are struggling with real life in in every way. So I, I think For me, it's always been important that part of why I became a professor was to share histories that weren't shared with me when I was being taught history. And I know, for instance, some of my former students who have graduated, particularly students who are not white, they said, well, I didn't see people like me on campus, but I could come into your classroom and I could hear stories like that. So that's just one aspect of it. And then I've been asked to do library programs. I did a, a series of programs with the Garfield County Libraries on the 150-year anniversary of the Civil War. And that was super fun because we had kind of collective reading and we'd get together once a week and talk about the reading. I really like teaching and I really like teaching people who want to learn. And so sometimes doing that in the community, I have more success than the, the student who like, oh, I just have to take this history course and I just have to Indoor. if they pay attention, they will enjoy that process. But many of them are just not in that place as I was not when I was sure. 18. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's probably quite different teaching 18 year olds compared to <laughs> getting out and yeah. being in among our community of members that are a little bit older. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so kind of changing gears just slightly, I wanted to ask you about your new book, that was recently published. So, you know, that's the other side. I'm always amazed with our faculty members. I mean, you're in the classroom, you're teaching, you're preparing for that, you're doing research, you're writing articles and blogs and books and in the community, like, it just amazes me with how much our faculty do. You're also advisors to students. Like, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Um, And so you recently published a book, so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind the book and then maybe what you're most excited about now that it's out there and in the world for people to read.
1: Well, it was a long time coming. I am a slow worker, and so this one took me nine years. It actually is based in research, some research that even goes beyond that. But I was selected to be part of a fellowship group in 2011 that was through the Library Company of Philadelphia, and it was on the problem of governance in the early United States. Uh, And there were nine of us, I think, who, again, read the same materials, but we were also supposed to be working on a research project. And when I had applied to be in that, I wasn't really sure what my research project was, but I knew that I was interested in mental illness. Mm -hmm. It had made its way partly into my dissertation, but I knew I wanted to develop that. Well, if you're thinking about The problem of governance in the early United States, our country is based on the idea of a social compact so that we have to collectively agree on the ways that our society works. And for that, you need rational actors. And so I started reading medical texts and the medical doctors at that time were also pretty concerned that liberty made people insane. And so you want a good government, you want a government that honors liberty, but liberty also causes insanity. And so that was kind of the inspiration for it. And, and in the end, the book was called Liberty and Insanity in the Age of the American Revolution.
2: Insanity being literally insane or just not acting wisely in relation to democracy? What Define what you're looking at when you talk about insanity.
1: Yeah. And so mostly not people who are literally insane, but more that anxiety about what do we do with irrational actors when we try to govern a country that needs rational people for it to work. Was that
2: based on the European experience that they were transposing or was it based on the experience things were happening in that moment in in revolutionary America?
1: it's It's always both. The colonial and early United States is very transatlantic and so the ideas are always tied back particularly to Great Britain and so it's also about so it's partly about that and it's also just the ways that people call each other crazy like we still do all the time, <laughs> right? And so it's the, the deployment of that language to create difference, to mm-hmm. put down your political enemies, to question what people are doing. And so a lot of it actually wasn't about literal insanity. It was about the idea of using the language to belittle others.
2: So that, we see some of that happening today, obviously, and that happened all the way back then. Is it just, it's just part of democracy?
1: Yeah, I I think very much so. Our government has changed just because we're bigger and everything, right, in the last 200 plus years. But the the fundamental ideas about how we govern are the same. And so I think we still need rational actors in order to make the government work. But as we know, our government officials aren't always rational. um, And that actually does pose a problem.
0: Does your book kind of delve even more into that or does it take another direction or?
1: 200 and something pages (laughs) on mostly that. And and so it's a chronological book. And so I started with, well, I actually started looking at the medical field in the first chapter and looking at that tension between liberty and insanity. So that first chapter is the only one that actually deals with people who are literally insane because some of them were put into what were called madhouses, and they claimed they were not insane Mm -hmm. I don't know if they were or not but taking someone's liberty away is really problematic whether you do it by putting someone in an institution or whether you do it by in the American Revolution taking a group of Quakers because they're pacifists and deciding that they're a danger to the state and removing them to Virginia Mm -hmm. right and so those tensions are very much part and parcel of society, and then I looked chronologically through the pre-revolutionary protests, through the war itself, because war is, from what I can tell, never been in it, seems like pretty madness, and then through the process of creating a nation. I thought I would be going into the 19th century, but the book actually doesn't get out of the 1790s.
2: Can you think of a rational actor that you came across in your research? Maybe maybe a household name that listeners might identify with from that era that you just say, that that was a rational actor. That's a <laughs> glowing example of the irrational rational actor.
1: <laughs> oh, that's asking a lot. <laughs> because everyone has moments where what they say and what they do don't necessarily mesh, right? It doesn't mean that they're insane, but there are deep-seated moments of irrationality, I think, in everyone. For... This generation that touted liberty and due process and all of these other ideals, which are so beautiful, all of them didn't always live up to them. And so I think it's maybe I'm hedging, but I'm gonna make um, you pick one. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think we ever see someone living one hundred percent up to his or her ideal.
2: Was there an example of where somebody from that era? acted rationally in a specific context that made a huge difference.
1: Yeah, you really want me to talk about George Washington, don't you? <laughs> hey. I know you do. <laughs> I feel like he's trying to lead you somewhere. Is that a leading question? <laughs> or or, uh, or any of,
2: anybody from that era that did something that made a difference when they did act rationally as you define it.
1: it and so, again, problematic for me because I, I tend not to look at things like that, but I know we had had an earlier conversation about George Washington, and I think, he does have many good qualities, particularly when he turned over his power and authority at the end of the war. It's actually something I don't write about in the book because oh, okay. it's, not, it's not really the focus of the book. But I think that's an important moment where he goes to Congress and turns over his sword and goes and retires for a while before he's called back into service after the, the Constitution gets put in place.
0: Great. Well, we are actually already at the end of our time mm-hmm. today with you. So before we let you go, what is the name of your book? And if, you know, listeners are interested, where can they, they find it?
1: It's called Liberty and Insanity in the Age of the American Revolution. It is published by Lexington Books. It was just published in December of 2020. And I would recommend getting a library copy. I wasn't all that familiar with the publishing process. And so the imprint is really expensive. And so I've been telling people just to check it out of the library or ask their library to purchase rather than purchasing it themselves.
0: I love that. Well, great. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time out of your schedule to come and chat with David and I and talk to the KFM listeners about a little bit about what you do at CMU. You're welcome. Thank you. Great. Well, this segment airs on the second Tuesday of each month on KAFM Community Radio. You can also listen to the podcast of today's show at KAFMradio.org. I'm your host, Caitlin Birdsall, along with my co-host, David Ludlam, and we'll be back next month for another edition of CMU Now on the Community Affairs Hour.